It is good to be with you, and I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Galatians chapter 2. I'm currently at Good Shepherd, uh, preaching through the book of Job, thought, I don't want to make them really sad, so I will go back and preach from Galatians, which I finished earlier uh, this year. This morning we are going to hear from Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, and we are going to get back to gospel basics. One of the joys of being a church planter is that a lot of the things that I'm preaching, people are hearing for the first time at Good Shepherd. And yet, even knowing that you all are probably very familiar with the ideas of justification by faith and union with Christ, your need to hear these things never goes away. And so I'm happy to remind you this morning of what you hopefully already know. But before we hear God's word, let us come before him in prayer. Father, I pray that we would never cease to be amazed and wonder at the reality that week after week after week, you gather us together, you call us to worship you, and you speak to us. And you command us to taste and see that you are good. And so I pray that this morning as we hear your word, that you by your grace would awaken us and make us alive in Christ that we would be able to taste and see your goodness. And that that would wash over us and soothe our weary souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word to you this morning from Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, But if in uh, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. At the end of Paul's historical and autobiographical defense of his gospel message and his apostolic mission, which covers the vast majority of the first two chapters of this letter, Paul tells the story of when the apostle Peter came and visited the church in Antioch, which was a church that that had a large mixture of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And when Peter first arrived, arrived, he freely joined in as the Jews and Gentiles rejoiced to eat together and share Christian fellowship. But when some other Jews from the circumcision party came from the church at Jerusalem, Peter, and following his example, the other Jewish Christians in Antioch began to withdraw from the Gentile Christians. And they refused to eat at the same table with them any longer. 
And according to Paul, this was an act of fearful hypocrisy that practically contradicted the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul rebuked Peter to his face. And in his rebuke, we clearly hear the theological thesis, the main point of Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is that no one, No Gentile and no Jew is justified before God by works of the law. For justification is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Now justification is a term referring to someone's legal status before the bar of God's justice. So you think of God as the holy judge of the universe and he declares his verdict upon everyone in this earth. And for the one who is justified, God's verdict is that you are righteous before him and under his law. It is the opposite of condemnation. So you as a justified person are declared to be a law keeper instead of a law breaker. You are not sentenced to eternal death, but you are given eternal life. Paul asserts that this righteous standing before God is possible in only one way, and that is by faith in Jesus. You are not justified because you actually are a law keeper. You are justified because you trust in the only perfect law keeper. Your good works, your obedience does not and indeed it cannot justify you before God. You need to be clear on this point because there is no more important doctrine in the Christian faith. In fact, the the great reformer Martin Luther appropriately said, if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. In other words, this is not a secondary subject on which Christians can agree to disagree. Any teaching that denies justification by faith alone in Jesus is not Christian teaching. This is not a subset of Christianity. It is another religion entirely. It is, as Paul says, a wicked distortion of the one true gospel. So Paul, in Galatians, as he writes this letter, He is dealing with the most important questions that humans need to ask. So you might be a little bit sleepy this morning. You might have some heavy things weighing on your heart. You might be easily distracted. Wake up and pay attention because I don't care what you have going on this day. I don't care what anybody else tells you. There is nothing more important that you need to think about and get in your head and in your heart than what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. All human religions and philosophies are trying to answer these questions. They're trying to ask, how can I live in a loving relationship with God? How do I live a right, good, moral life to live the way I'm supposed to? To live. And Paul says the answers to both of those questions is exactly the same. It is by faith 
in Christ. You are justified by faith in Christ. You live by faith in Christ. But the doctrine of justification by faith has always been resisted. It has always been rejected. It has always been ridiculed and criticized. So Paul, throughout his letters, repeatedly has to respond to objections and misunderstandings. And one of those objections or possible misunderstandings is stated in verse 17. Paul asks, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now this could be a general question asking, how can God actually justify? How can He declare people to be righteous who aren't actually righteous? How can He say you're a law keeper when you're a law breaker? That is the Roman Catholic Church objected to the Protestant reformers. Sounds like a legal fiction. Like God is just pretending people are righteous who are not and that would make God unjust. But while this might be part of the objection Paul is dealing with, I believe it's even more specific. The context is important. Paul is writing this letter because these group of people, the circumcision party, also known as the the Judaizers, who have been agitating the churches in Galatia and whose teaching Paul is countering in this letter, believed and taught that obedience to the Mosaic law as it was given under the administration of the Old Covenant, is necessary in addition to faith in Christ for you to be justified before God. So they did not deny that faith in Christ is necessary. They just said, you need something else. And that's obedience to the Mosaic Law. So for Jews... Eating with Gentiles who had not received the Mosaic Law, who were not following all of its stipulations, such as circumcision and the dietary restrictions, Jews believed they could not eat with these Gentiles unless they became Jews. So unless they started living and acting like Jews, the Jews, ah, we, we can't associate with you. To eat unholy foods with uncircumcised Gentiles was not okay. This is why they called the Gentiles sinners. It was just a way of saying they lived outside of the boundaries of the Mosaic Law. So for Peter or Paul to eat with Gentiles, for the Judaizers, that was to live like outlaws. They were found to be sinners in this sense, not obeying every detail of the Mosaic Law. So for the Judaizers, Paul's doctrine of justification by faith was actually encouraging lawlessness. To live outside the boundaries of the law and then say, well, I can do this because I have faith in Jesus, was for the Judaizers to say Jesus encourages lawlessness and he's he's a servant of sin. Now, before I get to Paul's response, let me say clearly that preaching the gospel of God's grace ought to raise questions about works. In other words, I'm not preaching the gospel like Paul preached it if what I say never makes you wonder, wait a minute, it it doesn't matter at all what I do? I, I can go and live any way that I want to live? Jesus is just taking care of everything? 
And you are not sharing the gospel like Paul. If no one asks you, like they apparently asked Paul, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? These are the questions people raised when they heard Paul preach about the grace of God. Now that is not at all what Paul is teaching. That better not be what I am preaching or what you are sharing with others. But salvation by grace is absolutely radical. And it ought to sound absolutely radical. You will need to make clarifications and help people understand what all of this means. But do not clarify so quickly and so often that you are actually obscuring the awesome wonder of salvation by God's grace alone. But still, Paul knows that objections will inevitably arise from the way he preaches and lives in light of the gospel of God's free grace, and so he is ready to address them. And he immediately denies with the utmost vehemence that Jesus is in any way a servant of sin. You see, he writes, certainly not. Absolutely no way. Don't even suggest it. But Paul knows, as it says in Psalm 18 verse 30 that God's ways are perfect. Paul knows as it says in James chapter 1 verse 13 that God is not tempted by sin and he certainly does not tempt anyone else to sin. So Paul is not saying Jesus is a servant of sin. Grace is freedom from sin, not freedom for sin. So Paul proceeds to explain that it's actually the Judaizers that, that have it all backwards. It's not justification by faith that implies Jesus is a servant of sin. It's adding works of the law to justification that would make Jesus a servant of sin. Paul writes in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now what does Paul mean? Well, he's first appealing to the progression of redemptive history. Christ came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law in his life, death, and resurrection. And when he died on the cross, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he tore down the wall of hostility, referring to the law that was a distinguishing separation between Jews and Gentiles. So Christ removed the law as a barrier separating Jews and Gentiles. The coming and cross of Christ fulfilled the law and it shifted the place of the law in the believer's life. So in light of this, Paul's saying that as he preached Christ crucified, he, in a sense, was tearing down the law. But requiring works of the law for Christian fellowship, as Peter was hypocritically doing in, in Antioch, was in one sense rebuilding the law in practice. It was rebuilding what Christ and the preaching of the gospel had tore down. It was reestablishing a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And so it was practically reversing redemptive history. And Paul says, if, if I did that, preaching and living in a way that upheld the law in a pre-Christ position... Then I'd be exposed and condemned as a lawbreaker. And then Christ would be a servant of sin if he justified me. Why? Because the law could not and was not given to remove sin and give life. 
The law on this side of the fall could only reveal sin and condemn sinners. The law shows you your sin. For in showing you God's righteous requirements, at the same time will show you how far you fall short of those requirements. To see God's standard of righteousness is necessarily to see how unrighteous you are. For those who cannot personally, perfectly, and perpetually keep the law, which is everyone this side of the fall, and which is the standard of righteousness that God requires, the only result of the law apart from Christ will be to show you your sin and then condemn you for it. So in rebuilding the law and making works of the law in any way part of justification, Paul would be reestablishing himself as a condemned sinner under the law, negating his deliverance from sin by faith in Christ. So if justification is even partially by works of the law, Jesus cannot justify anybody because nobody can meet the perfect requirements the law holds out. As one commentator says, to rebuild the law is actually to transgress it because we cannot keep the law in its perfection. So preaching salvation by obedience may sound very pious. It may sound like you take God's holiness very seriously. But when you build up the law for justification, all you do is expose and condemn yourself as a lawbreaker. You're not actually holding out a way for you or anyone else to be right with God. It's doing the exact opposite of what you want it to do. So the exhortation to us is we must never rebuild what the gospel of Christ has torn down. It must stay down. It's like the walls of Jericho. God causes the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down and he places a curse on anyone who tries to put those walls back up. And if anyone tries to rebuild the law and put it in a position of justifying sinners, all you receive is the curse of the law. And that curse is death. Living by the law is not the way to live to God. Instead, if you desire to live to God, do you know what you have to do? You have to die to the law. Paul says in verse 19, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. You see that? He had to die to the law, so that he might live to God. And to die to the law means you are no longer under its power. It no longer enslaves and condemns you. You no longer put your confidence in it and attempt to live by it. But how do you die to the law? Through the law. You might expect Paul to say, I died to the law through the gospel. But he doesn't. He says, I died to the law through the law. Now this could mean what I've already said, that the law serves to show you your sin and condemnation and so it kills any hope you might have had of being justified by it. Paul makes that argument in Romans 7. However, I think Paul's making a different argument here. I think Paul is speaking of the curse of the law, which is death for disobedience. So, Paul says that the power of the law is to kill the lawbreaker. 
But once that penalty is paid, the law no longer has any condemning power. The death penalty is a one-time sentence. You can only be executed once. So in saying he died to the law, through the law, Paul is saying he suffered the penalty of the law. And so the law has no more condemning power over him. In other words, Paul died to the law's power by suffering the law's penalty. But, you will object, Paul's not dead when he's writing his letter to the Galatians. How can he say that he died to the law? How did he suffer the penalty of death when he's still alive? And so he answers this question in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. So here's Paul's argument. When the Son of God took on human flesh, He was born under the law, as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Meaning Jesus lived under that same righteous requirement of God's law. Anything less than perfect righteousness deserves death. Now Jesus actually met and supplied this standard of perfect righteousness. But to save sinners, Jesus had to do more. He couldn't just supply perfect righteousness. He had to actually pay the penalty for sin. Adam broke the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden and the penalty is death. It must be paid, otherwise God is not just. And so Jesus not only lived a perfect life, He paid the penalty and bore the curse under the law on the cross, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13. So Jesus died under the law, bearing the penalty of law-breaking as if he was a lawbreaker, although he was the only law-keeper. And in this way, he suffered the curse of the law. So Philip Ryken says, the law's demand of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. It was the law that put Christ to death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as a cursed criminal condemned by the law. And this is the death to the law that Paul is referring to. He died to the law through the law because he was crucified with Christ who died to the law through the law. In other words, the penalty of death Christ suffered counted for Paul as if he had suffered it. Christ's death to the law was Paul's death to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, his death was my death. But again, you should ask, how is that possible? Paul is not Jesus. And this brings us to the wonder of what is called union with Christ. I said earlier there's no doctrine more important than justification by faith, but union with Christ is as important and justification depends on union. You can't understand how justification works if you don't understand union with Christ. So Christians will will use many designators to identify themselves. So you might say, I'm a Christian. I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm a new creation, I'm a believer. But by far the most common identifier and self-designation of Christians in the scripture is in Christ. You ask someone biblically, those times, who are you? I am in Christ. 
The Christian is first and foremost one who is united to Christ. And all that means is that you are now identified with Christ. He is your identity. As Martin Luther writes, By faith you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever. And this is part of what Paul means when he continues to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's saying Christ defines my existence. His life is just Christ's life in him. He's so united to Christ that for God to look upon Paul is to see Christ. And for God to look upon Christ is to see Paul. Not that Paul and Jesus are the same person. You, you don't become Jesus when you are converted. But they are so united that you are now identified together forever. Now our culture is obsessed with identity and having a, a healthy self-image. And they say that you, you find that by just going deep in yourself, finding truly who you are and then loving that. But Paul says the Christian understands himself in Christ. You, you can't have any kind of self-identity or healthy self-image apart from Christ. You never find your true self until you find yourself in Christ. And so the only way to have a healthy self-image is to see yourself in Christ. And how, how do you actually become united to Jesus and find yourself in Him? You should all know the answer by now. It is by faith. It's not by something you do. Paul says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith in Christ unites you to Christ. It lays hold of Him. He becomes yours and you become His, which is why justification by faith works as opposed to justification by works. For when you are united to Jesus, everything that belongs to Him now belongs to you. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. His perfect obedience and righteousness becomes your perfect obedience and righteousness. When you are attached to Christ by faith, God attaches you to the events of Christ's life as if they were part of your life. The story of His crucifixion, burial, and resurrection is now your story. This is why Paul can speak in the way that he does. Union with Christ by faith in Christ is how Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's how he can say, Christ lives in me. It's how he can say, I died to the law through the law. And this is why he says in verse 17 that he is justified in Christ. Not just by Christ, in Christ. Jesus does not so much give you justification as he gives you himself which results in your justification. So another great reformer, John Calvin says, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. So you need to understand, when you think about the gospel and how this works, salvation is not receiving benefits from Christ. 
Salvation is receiving Christ. You cannot separate Christ from all of these saving benefits we talk about. Jesus is not a vendor you come to and He gives you grace and justification and adoption and sanctification and you go your merry way. Jesus is not the first stop on the road of salvation. He is the entire road from beginning to end. Every link in the golden chain of salvation is Jesus. That's how it works. So when you hear that that Christ's righteousness counts as your righteousness. And that, that's what it's meant when you read in creeds and confessions about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It just means what He has counts for you. Don't think that this means Jesus is, is here, you're over here, and He beams over saving benefits to you. I've heard the analogy before and I get why people use it of how justification works. Here's Jesus. He has a full bank account, all the money in the world. Here you are. You have a negative bank account and justification through imputation is now His righteousness is is wire transferred over to your account. Doesn't work that way. It works with here's Jesus and all that He has. Here you are and you are transferred over here. And everything that he has now belongs to you. You get nothing outside of him. You get everything in him. And so when you think of the gospel and how good a giver God is, also remember, God is not a good giver because he gives you all of these good gifts. These gifts are good because they get you the giver. That's the glory of the gospel. Justification is good news because it means you get to be with God. It's not God so good because he justifies you. You need all of these saving benefits so you can be with God. That's what you should want. That is joy. That is peace. That is hope. It is living in a loving relationship with God Himself. And that's why justification is the best news you will ever hear. You are justified by faith in Christ because faith places you in Christ. But this is not the end. It's only the beginning. For the one who is justified by faith in Christ lives forever, every single day, by faith in Christ. Faith doesn't get you started and then your works take over. You live by faith every day. Faith is not a one-time decision or act. It is an everyday lifestyle. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I've already explained that part of what Paul means is that he is so united and identified with Christ that his life is Christ's life in him. If you read further in Galatians, you see in chapter 5 that this also means that Paul lives by the power of Christ's Spirit, who's the Holy Spirit indwelling him. So the Christian is now someone who ceases to live by his own strength and effort and now lives by Christ's strength. See, think of what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you no longer live. Christ lives in you. He is the animating power of your life through his spirit. Now this doesn't mean you actually cease to exist. Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh. But it means that you now do everything depending upon Jesus. Now Maybe living by faith just sounds very vague. What does that actually look like? Well, living by faith first means you consciously recognize every day and before everything you do that you can't do it apart from Christ. You don't just need Jesus for the big things in life. As if, okay, all the small details, you, you're, you're sufficient to take care of that. When things get really hard, that's when you turn to the Lord. Remember, you are commanded to do everything, whether you eat or drink, to the glory of God. You can't eat or drink or brush your teeth to the glory of God apart from the power of Christ. And so you need to understand this if you are to live by faith. And this is one reason that, that suffering, though it is the result of the fall and it will not be there in eternity, one reason that God continues to use it and He has purposed it as a wake-up call so that we stop thinking at any moment, yeah, I, I've got this, I'm good. You suffer a little bit and you realize, whoa, I can't do this on my own. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Who talks like that? Christians talk like that. And they boast, who am I? I'm weak. Insults, hardships, calamities, I'm content. Why? Because the other side of the coin is as you recognize how weak and helpless you are, you begin to really see how strong, how mighty Christ is. So to live by faith, you need to see that you are weak and that Christ is strong. That you are insufficient and that he is all-sufficient. You need to embrace Christ's words to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that will draw you to seek Christ in all things. And as you come to Christ, you access his power through prayer. You just sound like, what, what's the pastor's answer to everything? Well, read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. It really is the only answer to everything. That's how you learn who your God is. And as you pray, that is how you are drawn into communion with Him. And you are actively depending and drawing upon His power. Have you ever heard a little child pray? I try and keep motivating Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church. Families, worship together in your home. Jason Halopoulos is your pastor. I know you are encouraged to do the same thing. And if you need motivation, let listening to your children pray be a great motivation. Parents, you can learn a lot from listening to your children pray. 
our three-year-old daughter, Talitha, when, when she prays, she has very long, very confusing prayers. And I get lost most of the time. But they are also very profound. Because after every, before every phrase she says, she inserts the word help. So she prays for big, big things. She says, God, help my mom and dad be good. She does not care at all about God helping her be good. But she is very concerned with God helping her parents be good. But then she just starts to look around. And she will see her, her brother take a sip of milk. And so she will keep praying. God, would you please help Corin sip that milk? And then she will look and she'll see her big sister sitting on a chair. And she will ask God, help Brielle sit on the chair. And then she's really gone and she starts looking out the window and she will see a bunny hop by and she will pray, God, help that bunny hop. And this reminds me, I can't sip milk and I can't sit in a chair to the glory of God without God's help. Everything that I need to do, I need to ask God, help, because I can't. And as you pray, claim and trust God's good promises in His Word. Do whatever God has called you to do and then thank Him as He gives you the strength to do it. This is how you consciously live by faith. And you will notice that this defends against the criticism that justification by faith encourages sin. Justification by faith does not dismiss or encourage sin. It actually helps explain how your sin has been dealt with fully and justly in Christ upon the cross and how you now actually have the power and ability to do what God says. See, when you try to, to follow the law by living by the law, it doesn't work. But when you are made new by Christ and you die to the law through the law, now you can actually do what the law tells you to do by grace, living by faith in Christ. This is the strongest power and motivation for holiness. You want to obey the law, die to the law, live to Christ. Now you can obey the law. The Christian lives by faith in the Son of God. And I end with this. For Paul adds that he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the language of substitution. Paul says, Jesus, he did it all for me. Jesus gave himself for you, Christian. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He was buried for you. And he rose for you. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ can say the exact same thing as Paul. You see, the gospel is beautifully personal. Yes, Jesus died for all of his people. It is corporate. He, he loves his church, but his church includes individual people. Jesus didn't die for some nameless mass of people. Christian, he died with you in his mind and heart. He knew you by name. And so when you place your faith in Christ, you can say, Jesus gave himself for me. And why did he do this? Because he loves you. It's often very hard for us to believe that God actually loves us. And yet the cross was the display of Christ's love for his people. 
often just think, well, God tolerates me. He has to. I believe in him, and that's just the arrangement he made. So he'd love to get rid of me, but he can't because he promised to keep me if I put my faith in Jesus. But Jesus does not have to love you because he died for you. He died for you because he loves you. And let this teach you where to look when you are tempted to doubt Christ's love, which you will be. When you are tempted to doubt Christ's love and search for evidence of his love, don't do what you will probably most often be tempted to do and look at your circumstances. How's my life going? When things are going well, you think, yeah, God must love me. When things are not going so well, you think, well, why does God stop loving me? I often think of myself as I'm like the little mermaid when she's just plucking that flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. That's what happens when we look at our circumstances. But the cross is the irrefutable evidence of Christ's unchanging love for you. So when you, when you see that things are going well, look to the cross and thank God for his love for you. When things are not going so well, look to the cross and see how much Christ loves you. And when those accusations inevitably come into your mind and you start to think, but, but my sin, every time you start to think, but my sin, just counter with but the cross. My sin, the cross. It doesn't change. The Christian is one who is justified by faith in Christ and lives every day by faith in Christ. So you need to know salvation is not begun by your works and it is not completed by your works. It is all of Christ from beginning to end. So do not nullify the grace of God by trusting in your own works. If you require works for justification to any degree, you are saying the cross was a big fat failure and waste of time. That dishonors God. That is calling God a fool. So Christ is either everything to you or he is nothing to you, which is why we must all pray that by God's grace, we would learn to declare with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Our heavenly and holy Father, we do rejoice for so great a salvation. And I pray now that if there is anyone here in this room who has not placed their faith in Christ and is still trying to live by their own works, that you would work in their heart and do what only you can do by the power of your word and your spirit. Make them new, make them alive, lead them to call upon the name of your son for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you for that sure promise. And for those of us who have been justified by faith in Christ and are seeking to live by faith, would you guard us when we are easily tempted to turn back to trusting in our own works and thinking that somehow we are doing it? Would you remind us of the love of Christ? Would you lead our hearts and our thoughts to, to dwell upon the cross of Christ? And may we forever rejoice that we are weak but he is strong. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.